Take your scripture this morning. Take the word of God and turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And let me stop a moment and say, isn't this incredible that we are able to take God's word and open it to be able to hear from it, to be able to read it, to be able to understand it? Think for a moment. You and I hold God's word in our hand. Now, it may be the traditional word like this, the book form, or it may be something a little different like this that you're looking it up on and it's actually glowing. You know, used to, we always, uh, I would hear preachers say that the rustling of the pages would be like the brush of angels' wings. And it would be a beautiful sound to a preacher when you would hear those pages turning. But now, you don't necessarily hear the rustling of the pages. You see the glow of God, the glow of God's glory as people are looking at their phones or their iPads or whatever else. But either way, however it's communicated to us, it is a great privilege to know that God will speak to us, that we can literally hear what he has to say to us. And you and I would not know God, nor his promises, nor his commands, nor his words of comfort, if it had not been God deciding in his own wisdom and sovereignty to disclose himself to us, to reveal himself to us, to show himself to us. Certainly he did it ultimately through Jesus our Lord. But we know that he communicates through his scripture. And I hope and pray as we work through this message today, as we see how the Scripture was the authority for those early believers, that the Scripture is still the authority for us today. And it still speaks to us and challenges us and encourages us. In Acts chapter 17, we have Paul continuing on his missionary journey. He and Silas had headed out. They picked up some like Luke and Timothy and they had seen God's word go forth. They had seen people come to faith in Christ. They're basically right now traveling in that area of Greece. They, they put in at Neapolis. They went up to Philippi, saw great conversions. The church itself began to, to take root in that area. And then they moved over to a place called Thessalonica. Actually, the way they pronounce it today, for those of you who are there in Greece, Thessaloniki. I don't know, but I just like to say the word Thessaloniki. That's the way they say it today, but it's Thessalonica. They go there and they preach the word. Uh, Paul reasons for three Sabbaths there in the synagogue. And then he is basically pushed out of the area. There is great opposition that comes from those who claim to be of the Jewish heritage. They push Paul and the message of Christ out. But then they find... Berea. That's where I want us to look today in verse 10 of that 17th chapter. And it says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when they, the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, 
they came there also, stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So again, they're there at Thessalonica, and they see much opposition. But, but get this, the church had already been established. Believers were already there. As a matter of fact, it says that Paul leaves two of his companions there so that they can encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul moves about 45, 50 miles away to a place called Berea. And he goes into the synagogue just like he always would because he had a connection point there. Remember, he comes from a Jewish heritage. So he moves into the synagogue and he begins to talk to them about Jesus. And what do we know that he tells them about Jesus? He says, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was promised in the Old Testament. Notice the connection point that he has. These are Jewish individuals. They knew that Messiah was coming. They knew that the anointed one had been promised. So what Paul was doing was just connecting the dots. Paul said, just look, if you follow this, you will see that Jesus is the Messiah. Note what these Bereans did. In verse 11, it says that they were more fair-minded. We'll come back to that word later. But more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They searched the Scriptures. They had the Old Testament, so you know what they did? They said, we need to do some fact-checking. Do you ever see that on news channels sometimes? Like where they do like fact-checking of certain politicians. It could be any kind of politician of any party. Sometimes they'll come and they'll say, we want to fact-check the politician. And, and it's always amazing, of course. It depends on which channel you're watching, right? Of what facts are so and which are... But here, basically, you have the Brian saying, we want to fact-check Paul and his missionary team. And the way we're going to do that, this, is we're going to open up our copy of Scripture, which would have been the Old Testament, and we're going to see again if Paul is telling us the truth. They naturally turn to Scripture. Why did they naturally turn to Scripture? Because for them, Scripture was the recognized authority. Their Scripture, the Old Testament, carried with it the authority of God. Think of it just a moment. Even when we say that this is God's Word, we are saying that behind the writings of this book, you find the authority of God. God is speaking to us, and His Word is authoritative. They had a high view of Scripture. And they said, I believe that they might have even heard of Saul or Paul, but they said they wanted to find out for sure if Paul was, was speaking the truth. This individual that had blown into their town, this missionary team that had come in, they wanted to know if his word measured up to the word of God. They wanted to evaluate the word. Let me stop here and say this. When you hear somebody that is saying that they speak the word of God, when you hear somebody in a pulpit or even maybe out in the community and they claim the authority of God, 
when you hear them speak and they begin to give you a message, you and I ought to always go to the Scripture itself to make sure that what they are saying is actually true. And I would even say this. Now, I believe I am 99.5% right all the time. As I've said before, I'm like the old preachers of the day that may not have always been right, but we've never been in doubt. But even with that, I believe that you have a duty to go from this place on Sundays and during the week or whenever else, and you are to evaluate what I've said against this Scripture. I believe you ought to do that. I believe you should not assume that any preacher or pastor will stand before you and always get it right. You should not assume that. You hope that, you pray that. There's some great preachers and great pastors who are in churches, but I'm going to tell you no matter who they are, what they look like, that they always need to be measured by God's Word. Always. And I'll say this, if the Apostle Paul is okay with people evaluating his word based upon the Scripture, then all of us preachers ought to be fine of saying to people, hey, you evaluate what we say according to this word. Always. Because the Scripture is authoritative. We ought to search the Scripture because it is the authority for our faith and our practice. Of course, for us on this side of the New Testament... We recognize the Old and the New Covenants. We recognize the Old Testament and the New Testament as God's inspired words. It bothers me sometimes when I hear people say, well, you know, there was just a group of men or a church or just a council that pulled all this together, and they're the ones who decided what God's Word was and is. That is wrong. Some of you look and say, but, but Dr. Reggie, you know, if you obviously you didn't cover church history at New Orleans. Yes, we did. We cover everything at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Well, if you had covered church history, you know that there was a council that put all these things together. Let me say to you that before the church recognized the Scripture, God had already put his stamp of affirmation on each and every word. And second, the word that I just used, recognized. The church only recognized God's word. The church did not put together God's word. They did not put together the different books to say, yeah, this looks like it's inspired and this one isn't. It already had been. By the time you got to the council, these books had been used over and over and over by the church. God had already affirmed these things. For the early church, they knew that if an apostle or a link to an apostle had written the book, that it was from God's word, from God's voice. So in your New Testament, you have books that are written by the apostles, maybe people like Matthew or John, or you have Paul as recognized as an apostle in the Scripture, or you have a link to him. For example, John Mark. Remember, we have a gospel of Mark. We have a gospel of Luke. 
Why do we recognize those Gospels? Why do we see that? Because Mark was connected to Simon Peter. As I've told you before, he was the interpreter of Simon Peter. And it was basically Peter's Gospel as it had been recorded and put together by Mark. Luke. Dr. Luke was on the missionary journeys with Paul. Dr. Luke had come with that linkage to the apostles. And he spoke as the Holy Spirit inspired him, and he wrote these words. I say to you that the churches had already recognized this. These letters, these books had been widely distributed, geographically distributed by so many different churches, and they had been recognized in those churches. What those councils did is just formalize. They just recognized. They just said, hey, we know that these are the ones who have been recognized by God and by his church. And they demonstrate a consistency, uh, orthodoxy, because God never contradicts himself. The Holy Spirit was in, involved in all this. I would love to be able to stay here on this subject and talk to you a little more about how the Holy Spirit inspired each and every writer. But how ultimately God used those individuals to bring forth and produce exactly what he wanted. 66 books, 40 or so authors, over at least 1,500 years. And yet, when you and I look from Genesis to Revelation, can we not see the hand of God all throughout? And is it not unified in its consistency of story and the redemption itself. Isn't that amazing? You know, if, if you and I, let, let's say we would pick out uh, 40 or so here and we would decide to write different stories and put them together. If we had just done that on our own, do you know how different they would be and how inconsistent they would be? Now, I would hope most of us would get our theology and our doctrine right, but I would say to you that it would still vary in this room and beyond. Forty different authors, 66 books, 1,500 plus years, and yet the unity uh, and consistency of God's Word remained. Why? Because, yes, it's a man book that men wrote it, but much more importantly, it is a God book because God was the one who inspired those men to write this. It's the authority for us that we can look at as reliable. We can trust it. I went through a class at New Orleans called Textual Criticism. That is where we would look at different words and, and we would look at maybe this manuscript over here said this and this one over here said that and you would think by going through such a, a class that my faith in the overall scripture might be shaken a little bit. I will tell you that I was actually confirmed and assured because when you got to looking at all and we have so many different manuscripts, so many different ones that when you could bring them together, you, you could see, you could see like what had happened. Like, because God inspired the original men, but he didn't always protect the transmission of the word. So sometimes there was a scribe that might hear something a little differently than somebody else, like in a room. Like, you know that happens, right? I guarantee you some of you are hearing different things this morning, even though the preacher's saying the same thing. But they have a, 
they might hear something differently and they might put down a different letter or something like that. Guess what? You could tell. You knew. There was no doubt. There was nothing that ever affected God's Word or any major doctrine or anything else that we had. I was actually confirmed. I, I was like, wow, this is awesome. God's Word is true. I had known it, but it helped to confirm it in my life. And I do believe that what we have in the Scripture is all that he wanted. No more than he wanted, just what he wanted for us to have and for us to see. Dr. Travis up at Blue Mountain College used to say, I believe the Bible from cover to cover. I even believe the cover because it says Holy Bible, he says. We can have, we can have assurance in the Scripture being His Word to us, His perfect Word. And if we have that assurance, then that means we can rest in its authority. You see, the Bereans had a high view of Scripture, and they accepted it as authoritative in their faith and in their practice. And it's what we as God's people come to to seek answers. We seek our doctrinal questions. We find those answers here. We look for practical questions. We find answers here. Sometimes it's not always spelled out like we would like it, especially for our context today. But I'm going to tell you there are timeless truths and principles here that will speak to us and help us and guide us along the way because God's Word is sufficient to us. This is the reason I believe we have to look at it together, even in these settings, even in Sunday school and other places, so that we can understand it as authoritative for our lives. A few years ago, I was riding along with one of my deacons, and we had actually uh, been out just kind of doing some things together, and we pulled up. He was going to let me out, and I was going to get in my car and leave. And all of a sudden, a very strange conversation pursued. He, um, he began talking to me about the church, and we, all, we already had been. But at the point we pulled up and stopped, and I still remember the grocery store parking lot we stopped at. And he looked at me and he said, hey, Brother Reggie, he said, I just want to say this, and I hope you understand this. He said, I think you use the Bible too much when you preach. <laughs> I, I'm serious. And, and, and I looked and I said, what? And he, he realized then, you know, okay, I, I, I mean, it wasn't anger in my, it was like disbelief, okay? And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, no, I don't think I meant that the way it sounded. And I said, well, you know, it sounded just like pretty simple, clear cut about using the Bible. And, uh, and he said, well, he said, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you always have to, like, point out things in the Bible. But, and, and this is what got me, and again, not trying to knock anybody else, but he, this was his understanding and where he was. He said, I think we would do better as a church if maybe you could do a little more like Joel Osteen. Okay. I'm a very patient guy. Very, but I believe that the flames of fire lit my eyes that day. 
what? You do what? He said, yeah, I think maybe in all. I was like, now, hold on. I still wear a suit. And Joel wears a suit, so don't, don't like, I've got something like him, but that might be the only thing. And I got talking about it, and we talked it through, and I said, you know what? And, and, and this is what I told him. I said, all I can do is preach the Bible. I, I was taught that preaching was giving the Bible a voice. It's just bringing forth the Word of God and giving it an audible voice for people to hear. I must preach the Bible. Why? Because this is the authority. If I come to you and if I tell you other things, I have no authority behind what I say. But if I stand upon the Scripture and tell you what the Scripture says, then it is authoritative for my life and authoritative for yours. I said, that's all I can do. He moved shortly after that. Not just churches. He moved geographically. He got out of town. They naturally turned to the Scripture because it was their recognized authority. But they naturally studied the Scripture. And I want to point this out just a moment. They naturally studied the Scripture because it was their daily practice. So they turned to Scripture because they want to check out this guy named Paul to see if what he's saying is true. But they also just naturally turned to it to study it because that was their natural practice. They search. I went and again looked this word up, this original word. It means to try to learn the nature or truth of something by the process of careful study, evaluation, and judgment. Simply stated, they would study it thoroughly. Friends, you and I say that we believe in the authority of Scripture. So many of us in this place would agree with that. Do we commit ourselves to thorough study of it? Ah, this is where I think we fail sometimes. I would say in our Baptist churches that many of us have subscribed to the authority of Scripture. But we have failed too often in the thorough study of Scripture. We have done well speaking about it. We've done a little more poorly studying it. They would study it. And it was a regular practice. They would study it daily. They would give thorough investigation to the Scripture. They would dig into it. Why? Because that was God's plan of sanctifying. God's plan of growing was the truth. Donald Whitney, who spoke about this sanctification process in our lives, how we are grown through the Scripture, he says, if we settle for a poor quality intake of hearing, reading, and studying God's Word, we severely restrict the main flow of God's sanctifying grace toward us. For those who use their Bibles little are really not much better off than those who have no Bibles at all. He said, if we do not study, we are not going to know and we are not going to grow as we should. It's as though we didn't have God's Word itself in our lives. He says, we must study. We must dig into it. And see, as good Baptists, Baptists who have always been people of the book, what have we always said? That every individual, 
every individual under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they come to the Word, as they dig into it, as they study those foundational elements of it, that every individual can know God's Word for himself or for herself. That's what we've taught through the years. Now, it's great to have preachers. It's great to have teachers. God allowed for those uh, offices there in the Scripture. But you can study. You don't have to have just a preacher. You don't have to have some type. You can study. You can dig into it. There are so many resources. Now, I would say to you, evaluate even those resources. But there are so many resources out there now for you to do your own study. And then come, see if it's lining up with what we say on Sunday, what your friends and, and family members say. Kind of see what the, how it is and allow it to speak and challenge one another. We dig in daily, systematic. One of the reasons I do like preaching through a book is so that we can be systematic. It also forces me to address some things because all of us preachers have hobby horses. We'd love to preach on every Sunday, but I'm convinced that you need a steady diet of the whole counsel of God. And if we go through book by book, verse by verse, we go through these things, I believe that we're healthier as a church and as a people. Now, I love... Did I tell you I love Reese's? There was one pack that made it past last Sunday. And I had it with some homemade ice cream last night. Vanilla ice cream. as Bluebell. But that's pretty good stuff, right, Dale? Dale, it's the only time I've heard you say amen in five plus years since I've been here. You know, <laughs> you've been back there with that solemn Bogalusa look all this time, and now you finally said amen. I'm proud of you. I enjoyed that last night. That was great. But you know what? I don't need that every day in my life. And you know, there are times when we can bring you the sweeteners and the certain things of Scripture, and man, you feel good. You can leave this place. You're on a spiritual high. But you and I need a steady diet. We need a healthy diet. We need those things that will encourage us and comfort us and help us as we go out so that we're on spiritual highs, but we also need those things to challenge us directly. We need those things to hit us straight in the face. We need those things that will rearrange our lives so that our practices look more like his than ours. And that only comes through ongoing examination and careful study of the Scripture. They studied and then, as they searched the Scripture, they surrendered to what the Scripture said. Well, it is the authority. It is that which we study, or they studied. But then they would surrender. They believed. That's what the Scripture says. They believed the Word as it was confirmed. And they surrendered to Christ's Word, to that salvation, to the good news, to the gospel. They they were saved. They became obedient to the faith. Now, this is what's cool. If you notice again, I think there in verse 11, it, it, it says they were more fair-minded. I went back and did a little study of that word. That word means something uh, of like they were noble-minded. It, it was like they were part of the aristocracy. Because the Greeks would use that word to speak of those that were 
cultured. They would even use that word to speak of the open-minded. They were open-minded. They were fair-minded. They were noble-minded. Dr. Luke uses this as a compliment. He says they weren't like those who were in the synagogue of Thessalonica. These were different. They were open-minded. Now, see, this... this you and I be honest. When people think of those who are Bible-believing Christians, oftentimes open-minded is not the adjective that they would use. Right? They would say, you're closed-minded. You're narrow-minded. The Bereans actually were open-minded. They were open-minded. They wanted to hear the arguments. They wanted to hear the message. They just wanted to make sure that the message lined up here. So they were open-minded. They wanted to hear, but hey, this is the basis of Hilar and truth. So as long as it lines up here, they will surrender to that thought, to that belief. And I believe in being open-minded. Again, as Dr. Travis used to tell us at Blue Mountain, he said, be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> Look at the Scripture. Again, evaluate things. Study. Surrender then. Surrender. If a Christian, a Christian is careless in Bible reading, he will care less about Christian living. That's what someone said, that if we are careless in our Bible reading, we will be careless or we will care less of Christian living. Now, some people would say that seems so prideful again to insist on one truth. But let me ask you this. Is it more prideful for me to say, this is God's word, all of it is God's word, and I will surrender my life to what he says. I will be obedient. Is that more prideful than saying, you know what, this is not totally God's word. There are some places in here that this just is not true. It's not, you know, this is... I want, I want, you know what? As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, this section in here, it is not historic. We, we ought to just take it and tear it out of our Bibles. And years ago, W.A. Crystal, who stood at First Baptist Dallas, took his Bible and tore out pages and threw them into the audience. Oh! I can feel a little my mama coming out in me right now. I'm so grateful I was not there. I probably would have had some type of um, anxiety attack or something to happen. This is God's Word. I was like, you wouldn't tear it out. But that's what people are doing. And is it not prideful for them to determine in themselves that they will choose which is authoritative and which is not? And Paul, is that not more like trying to be like God? See, I think it's much more humble to say, you know what, this is God's Word. All of it's God's Word. I don't have any type of debate with it, or I can't. I may have questions, but I can't debate God's Word. All I'm going to do is place myself under its authority, and I'm going to surrender to it, and I'm going to do what it says. That seems like a much more humble way. They surrendered salvation. I love the way the Scripture says this that men and women were saved because sometimes women were ostracized in that culture. And it basically says that this gospel was for everybody. Oh, Acts 16, remember? The first European convert was Lydia, a woman. 
the slave girl there in Philippi, the Philippian jailer, on and on. The gospel is for all. The word is for all. When we hear it, we recognize it, we surrender ourselves to it. And listen, I love to study and I love books. I love, I used to love being in seminary because I, I just love to buy the books. And I love to read them and look at them and to see different things. But this is the only book that will make a difference. You can read a self-esteem book and you can feel better, but you will not be changed. You can read a science book, and well, you should. And you can know more about your area of work or whatever else, but it will not transform your life. You can do your math, and certainly you should. But a math book will not change your heart and transform your practice. But this book will because it's God's Word. If you'll surrender to it. I will say this. When God speaks, He demands a response. Now, He'll speak in different ways. And through the Scripture, you'll see the different types of literature and all, and He'll speak differently. When He spoke with the law and He was there at Mount Sinai, what did He do? He rocked the mountain with thunder and lightning because he wanted you to know that he was the king and you were the servant. In the epistles, he would speak like a teacher because he wants to instruct you and instruct the church, and he wants you to become a disciple following him through a teaching and instructional way. There are many ways God will speak, but he always expects a response. The response is obedience, always. Now, this may bring you into conflict with others. It certainly did here at Berea, didn't it? They accepted the truth, and what happened? The Scripture says that those from Thessalonica, some 45, 50 miles away, heard what was going on in Berea, and they came over. And they began to try to whip up the crowd once again into a frenzy. Just want to remind you that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you're going to come in conflict with the culture around you. Now, these were people who actually said they had, had a high view of Scripture, but yet they had not really studied it or given themselves to careful investigation. Your obedience to God's Word will bring you into conflict with a culture that is anti-God. And you need to be ready for that. You and I cannot back down. We cannot compromise. We cannot give in and capitulate. We must still stand for what God's Word says. And you know what I've noticed? Men do not reject the Bible so much because it contradicts itself. They reject it because it contradicts them. And there are a lot of people today, their lives are contradicted, and they will stand for those things that are not appropriate, even in our, some of our churches. Listen, I believe in proper interpretation of Scripture. We ought to interpret, interpret Scripture in the context of then, though. We are not to reinterpret it in the context of now. And that is what is occurring. You'll be brought in conflict with others. Right now, probably in our culture, one of the greatest places of, con of conflict between biblical uh, beliefs and cultural norms is in human sexuality.
It is. The Bible says what? The Bible says that God made them male and female. That's what he says. The Bible says that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. That's what the Bible says. But yet, what does culture say? Culture continues to attack that line, attack that truth over and over and over. And there are those today who have assumed deity or a place of deity, and they have decided what is right and what is wrong. And yet I say to you, the Scripture is always true. It always is. Now, we need to be loving in the way we speak the truth. We need to do what we can to bring people to the gospel. But just know that when you stand for biblical truth, you will come in conflict with the culture. But don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. I was uh, speaking with, and I wasn't going to mention you, but I'm going to now, okay? Richard Hood this week. And uh, my kids were down swimming. I had to have something for them to do while Leslie was gone. So anyway, we went down Friday. We were swimming. And look, I mean, I, 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 I took it on the chin to go down there because he was in his shorts. And if you've seen his legs, you just don't. I mean, <laughs> anyway, I went down there and got over that because I just needed some, you know, time with the kids to swim. And anyway, so we were sitting around the table. And Richard and I were talking about Ephesus because I think y'all are studying that in Sunday school. And, of course, he was with us in Greece, and we saw Ephesus, and wow, the immorality that is captured in history. Wow, the immorality in so many different ways. We talked a little bit about it, but then I said, we, we talked specifically about the encouragement we had. Because get this, when Paul and his missionary teams went into these into these areas, it was not a biblically saturated area like the South sometimes, like our Southern America has been. They went into areas of unbridled immorality and ungodliness. They went into areas that had accepted so much paganism and so many other gods. And Berea was like that. Even, I know you have those who were the Jews, but even the Gentiles, others who were there, they came in conflict. The culture was there. The, they were counter-cultural in who they were. But, but this is what's encouraging. They preached the gospel of the good news. They brought the word of God. And what happened? People got saved and they were changed. So I'm telling you today that, yes, the culture may be so difficult for us to face and we may come in conflict with it, but you never doubt the power of God's word. You never doubt the gospel that it can still change people's lives. And that's the reason we hold to the truth. We hold to what God has given us. I say to you, I say to you, make a commitment this morning. Make a commitment before you walk out this door to search the Scriptures. And then make a commitment to surrender to the Scripture. Whatever area of your life it needs to knock off, you let it knock off. Whatever area it needs to grow you in, you let it grow you. You be obedient. No matter what conflict comes, no matter what you face, you stick with the Scripture. Be, with a, be like a Berean believer. 
and give yourself totally to God in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. And Father, now speak during this moment of commitment that we would give ourselves fully to you and to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?